Thanks. This week, I want to talk about my perennial topic, and that is serialization. How do I take my awesome C-sharp and F-sharp objects and write them to disk or send them up to a server? I feel like I want to talk about this topic all the time, and I never get it fully out of my system, but I've been using a new technology for serialization, and I'm all excited about it. So James, we're going to talk about protocol buffers. Google Tech. This week on Merge Conflict, Frank tells us how we're doing everything wrong. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> no, I, I admit how Google has a library I actually want to use. I try to avoid all Google libraries in general, but um, I've really kind of fallen in love with protocol buffers lately. They're solving a lot of problems that I run into, and I think we can talk through that and also discuss how I'm something like five to ten years behind everyone but it's not just me i heard recently you were doing some grpc stuff so i'm not the only one catching up yeah you know in the world of back-end services the world that i lived in forever and still live in is just restful apis you know just here's a restful api you hit it you pull down some data done i just we talked about how i was updating my meetup.com backend and updated my Restful backend services and kind of got it done. And I guess I never really entered anything beyond that in my life because I, I came to know how RESTful services and APIs and swaggers and all that stuff worked. And maybe it must have been two or three months ago, the ASP.NET community standup had the grpc team on to talk about grpc for .net. Now, I did not tune in to that specific episode, but it did have me interested that the Google team for grpc was on this call and James Newton King was on that community standup too. And I'll, we'll put that in the, the show notes. And I thought that that was a cool thing. And that also made me think, maybe I should figure out something about this grpc thing. And so far... <laughs> I still don't know anything, Frank, basically okay. is what it comes down to. <laughs> well, truth be told, this is going to be yet another episode where we talk about things that we're only vaguely aware of. I don't know too much about gRPC either other than the high level things. But what I do know, James, is protocol buffers. And gRPC is just a layer on top of protocol buffers. It's uh, it's Maybe we should define things for a second. So what is a protocol buffer? What's the, What's your definition of one? James. Uh, um, let's look here. Protocol. Oh, you're going to cheat. Cheater, um, cheater. <laughs> Webster defines the protocol buffer. So, okay. So how I, I think of it, this is what my knowledge of not looking at Google right now is how we've returned data from an API perspective, started with XML, slim down to JSON, and then slim down to binary responses. And I think that's what protocol buffers are, is that there is a definition of some form, but it's a way of serializing it into binary data. So it's smaller, tiny packages. And that could be completely wrong. Yeah, no, you absolutely nailed it. That was, I mean, it is really just another thing in that lineage. We had XML and JSON. We like those because they're text-based 
the internet has always been kind of a text-based protocol. HTTP is text-based. We like it as developers because we can write out a file, open it up in our stupid <laughs> coding editors, and they open. We don't have to write a new editor or a new viewer to be able to look at these files. We love them. But the fact is they are a bit inefficient, and they're inefficient in multiple ways. One is their size. And this is actually kind of debatable because any text file format, you can just compress it and blam, there goes its size because text formats compress very well. But that means that it takes more processing power to decompress them and open them up. So if you want efficiency both in size and CPU, then it's always been kind of well known that realistically you want a binary format. It's not, it's debatable, you know, it's kind of historical, all these things, but if you just run some performance tests, I think even Miguel used to argue about this on his blog. Do we have a bell for Miguel? We ding. should. Yeah, ding. <laughs> uh, on his blog, he used to talk about um, if you love your users and you love your servers, please use a binary format. Have you ever used BSON? No, but I've heard of it. And I believe that JSON.net has a BSON converter built in too does and it's fantastic it's actually what i use for a lot of my apps up until well we're going to start talking about protocol buffers but got to do the historical first i use bson a lot and that's because for my file formats and data that i'm shipping around oftentimes i have images and video and other binary files that i'm shoving in there and it just, it ruins, like you can encode that into a JSON file as like base 64, but it makes that file non-readable. You don't want to open that in a text editor anymore. So I feel like there's this, there's this uh, chasm you fall off to. You're in this text world with XML and JSON, everything's great, but then you actually want to start storing big data into a thing and you got to start looking at more efficient forms. Yeah, gotcha. That makes sense. And probably for every different application, there's going to be some sort of fi file format that is going to make the most sense in general and for your company and, and the speed and the performance that you're looking for and, and the size in general. Um, yeah. And so BSON is, it stands for binary JSON. Mm-hmm. Yep. Simple. Love it. And I use that in a project and it works very well. The neat thing there is you can use all the knowledge you've learned from using Newtonsoft JSON. So all your JSON converters, all your custom things, this and that, it all just works with it. It just, you know, now it's a binary format. It's more efficient, tighter than that. But it's still not the most efficient thing on the planet. And that's where we get into protocol buffers. Because BSON is still dictated by the JSON schema. And as we all know, JSON schema-less. It can be any object can have any properties in it. That makes it very flexible and very easy to use. But it also means there's just losses in efficiency because you have to handle the general case. So protocol buffers are different. Protocol buffers are you have to start with a schema. But the nice thing is with a schema, now you can generate code that can read and write uh, these files or uh, upload and download from a server more efficiently than a schema-less protocol. You know me and efficiency. I, I just fell in love with it at that point. Yeah, that makes sense. And and I'm sort of looking at the file. So there is sort of some sort of structure or some sort of schema to a protocol buffer. And, and 
how Google says is, is a protofile and how I always thought of JSON in general is like there's this magical JSON blob and then you are telling your deserializer how to deserialize it. But correct me if I'm not here, the, the idea of a protocol buffer is that both the server and the client know what is going to be in the payload specifically. Yep. Um, The idea is they both share the same schema. So your server could be written in who knows what language, your app can be written in who knows what language, but they have this common schema and this common file format that they're all writing to, line format, whatever you want to call it. That's you know, that's that's what we get from having a central schema. We've had this with XML DTD. Is that what those are called? I've totally forgotten. What are XML schemas called? Whatever. No one wrote them. Do you ever write one? <laughs> DTOs, data transfer objects? D- uh, data. I thought it was DTD, data type document. I don't know. You, you didn't write one. I didn't write one. No one wrote them. <laughs> it is DTD. It is DTD, by the way. Nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's even a JSON schema out there somewhere. I don't know anyone who uses it. But then there's um, Swagger. I've seen people using Swagger all around. And the thing is, Swagger doesn't actually dictate um, a file format, a, a, a byte format, a line format. So it's kind of a different level of abstraction. But it's all kind of the same idea of let's have a shared schema. Gotcha. Yeah, and then that was the idea of a swagger blob or definitions like you can in all and for all purposes, like be like, Hey, this is what the server is returning. And now you can know what it's returning. And I have to <laughs> think about it because this is what it's doing. And that was the problem in the past is I would write apps based off what a JSON blob was. Now the problem is, did they mean string did they mean date time did they mean <laughs> yeah. uh, an integer like what did they actually mean and, and if you didn't create that api or if you didn't have a definition file then you are just guessing uh, at it and sometimes you aren't right in fact if you were to go to QuickType or json to c sharp you paste a json file in there it's going to do its best to guess but it doesn't actually mean that it is correct so for instance if you were to return a bunch of URLs in a, a field. So you said like, you know, w- URL, and then you put a URL in the in the JSON mm-hmm. blob. But if you were to put that into one of those kind of reverse things, it would say, oh, it's mm-hmm. a, it's a URI. It like it's a system URI. But what if the server was to return hello Frank for one of them later on? Right. Well, it's not right. a URI; it's just a string, right? And uh, without having the definition file to say this is what it is, then you're not ever going to be able to be a hundred percent correct. Yeah, it's it's basically the argument for explicitly typed languages versus dynamic or implicitly typed. I think as at least you and I, as C sharp developers, uh, we like our types, we like our schemas. We want to say, this is the data that I expect to get back from this function. Here's the data I'm going to give you. We write types for it. It's nice. (laughs) Uh, So I like that part of it. But I got to tell you, the part that I absolutely love about protocol buffers is their handling of versioning. And this is something I think a lot about. Because 
bring up iCircuit as usual as my example. It's a 10-year-old app. Um, I have been slowly extending its file format over the last 10 years. And let me tell you, James, I have made every mistake you can make in designing a file format. I am so afraid of adding anything to this file format anymore. It's still kind of a small miracle it parses. And I wish I had used something with a strong schema. But the real issue is, how do I load... um, circuits or files, whatever. How do I have a version one API that uh, is loading up old data in a new version of the software? How can it migrate the columns? Can it understand what things are missing and what things are optional? And I think you can accomplish all that with JSON for sure, but you're stuck with defaults and it's a little hard to tell what was unspecified because of a version difference and what was unspecified just because it was unspecified. You can have that with SQL schemas if you're very careful, but we all know migrations are complicated there. Just in general, versioning's hard. And I uh, I think that their solution to it is very elegant in that they say every attribute of every object is optional. And it's up to your source code to deal with that fact. And that's how they make versioning possible. Mm, I see. So it's yeah, tough. it may not be there. You just have to. Yeah, it's tough because if I have an object named person and it has a name field, I want to say name is required. Name is absolutely required. But what I'm forgetting is that maybe in 10 years, I might want first name, last name, not just name. And so I might deprecate name and stop using it. And so they just had to make this hard decision of everything's optional. And I hate that in some regards, because as a data modeler, you know, I want my domain to express the invariance of my system. But you have to make exceptions uh, to serialization just for the aging problem, just for the fact that people are going to put these in a folder somewhere, forget about it, use your software five years later and expect that file to open in the newest version. It's true. Versioning has always been a question of the day when I create backends or I integrate with backends because just literally when that meetup.com, I've <laughs> I've migrated with them from V1 to V2 to V3 and how they version is, well, we hit you hit a different URL and now this is V3, right? And it returns That's different terrible. objects. And, you know, and, and we, I've always talked about having the mobile gateway, which was you have your, because then your mobile apps, you also have to worry because who knows if your users are going to update your app. And if your backend changes, you have older versions of the app. It doesn't mean that all of your clients are on the newest version. So having the mobile gateway that's also version to say, okay, now the mobile, you can always add stuff, but you can't really remove stuff, right? You can't change the types. You can't do that stuff. <laughs> so you could add things always, mm-hmm. kind of. You can always add things. I feel like that's okay. But removing things, that that's a no bueno type of thing because it used to be there. So now your older clients are like, oh, first name doesn't exist. You know what I mean? And now it's full name. So, um, or that's a good example. It was full name, but you want first and last name. And like, oh, I'm going to get rid of full name. You're like, oh, no, right? It's just a big headache. So having another, yet another in-between server that says, this is my actual backend service, but then here is what my mobile clients are going to listen to. And then they'll have versions on top of it. So you might then have different endpoints just for your mobile client um, that can hand it. Or if your backend changes, well, guess what? Your mobile client can then traverse that data from V2 or V3 into the mobile specific side, like payload. Um, 
And that's it's no matter what you do, it always sounds like it's a versioning nightmare. So maybe this protocol buffer, if you think about it, where everything is null ahead of time, um, but it also sounds like it would have headaches some way too. No. Oh, there definitely are headaches, but here's the trade-off. Um, instead of having a magical system that fails 10% of the time and you have to investigate and figure out why or remember that you deprecated that one field five years ago and, oh my God, I forgot to add support for that, mm -hmm. um, protocol buffers kind of force you to contend with versioning because everything is optional. You have to write your code that way. If you're using um, null reference uh, tracking in C Sharp 8, you can actually get errors out of the compiler for, you know, not checking that things are, are actually exist, you know, not assuming that they exist. I know that the F Sharp code generators for protocol buffers, everything gets marked optional. So that means every line of code, whenever you want to touch a field, you have to first check if it actually exists. It's super frustrating. But you're trading a tiny bit of effort now so that in the long run, um, the magical system won't fail you because it doesn't exist. This is all manual <laughs> and things will just work. So you're trading a tiny bit of pain right now so that in the future, things just work. Got it. Yeah, that, that makes some sense in, in general of how I think about doing it. And it sounds like you could also perhaps migrate if you were using a RESTful backend into a like if you're like okay well we're gonna continue to support our rest api backend but maybe i want to also add on a protocol buffer you could probably just slap that on top of it or run it side by side at the same time oh and they're absolutely orthogonal to each other you can use protocol buffers with a rest api because it is just like json it is just like xml so anywhere you receive json or give out json you could use protocol buffers instead they're just faster no <laughs> and better <laughs> yeah that that was a question i was going to get to i think that we've talked about protocol buffers but we didn't actually say why would you want to use one like versioning yes but like what drew you to it was it the versioning was it something else because i mean i've been using json files for many a moons and they seem to be working for me frank just saying yeah yeah that's nice that's good for you <laughs> Okay, so um, I have two scenarios where I ended up using them. Uh, one app is what I was mentioning before, where this app is able to consume large media files itself. So think of it as like a video editor. It's not. It's not. It's not a video editor, <laughs> but it can consume very large files, like video files. Got it. And it needs to track those. And under some cases, I want you to bake those into your project file, so that you're not like fishing around your hard drive for them. You know, really just. Burn, put them right in there. And in that case, um, unfortunately, JSON.net's just not fast enough. In 99% of scenarios, JSON.net is plenty fast. It's fine. <laughs> but I was pushing it. It was doing a lot of serialization and deserialization for basically very simple data structures, array of bytes, array of floats, just a lot of them, a whole, whole lot of them. <laughs> and so for me, it was... Um, a, a CPU speed issue, but on top of that, um, size on disk issue, because I'm saving these somewhere. And uh, JSON is a text file format, and base64 encoding binary files is not pretty. It bloats. It bloats up quite big. Mm. So it's really those engineering reasons that I wanted protocol buffers. It's, it's yeah. Otherwise... 
things are just slow. <laughs> I, I hate slow, James. <laughs> That's true. But, okay. Yeah. And any yeah, opportunity, so. right, in general that you can say, hey, I can make this faster. Like, I, I would like things to be faster, right? Just in general. Yeah. Yeah. Now, let me name another fun benefit of this. We talked about undo buffers a little while ago. Mm-hmm. And I talked about a few different techniques you can use uh, for undo buffers. One of the simplest ways is just every time the user takes an action, just save a copy of your full data model into a list and keep a list of full copies of your data model and unserialize them whenever someone hits undo. It's kind of inefficient in memory, but it's super simple in code, super easy to implement. So it's actually pretty a pretty decent solution for people to use. Well, Imagine this scenario. So you, you have a running app, James, and there's a root object called document. And it's a very complex app. There's a thousand you know, children coming off of document and all that stuff. It's, it's a complicated app. And now um, someone hits undo. You want to deserialize another document object. Now I have two document objects. Now I have to like transfer the contents of one of those document objects into the other you know what I'm saying? It's like yeah. it's like the merger problem. Maybe I called an API from a server and it sent me a new document. How do I merge that in? Do I swap out and this is an all new document and I have to do redo all my bindings, stop all processes working on that data? It's a very complex thing. Or do I merge them together? It's a weird choice we have to make. Yeah. Well, Tricky. yeah. It's tricky. Yeah. And I think most people just swap out the object, but it's a, it can be very inefficient, especially if you have background processes working on that object. It's trickier than it sounds. But what protocol buffers gives you is this merging capability very easily. Any object, I can say document one, merge with document two, and it'll just suck in all the data from document two and kind of do a diff of them and only update what it needs to update. That is a very powerful feature that you can use for a lot of different scenarios. Undo buffers, saving and loading, communicating with servers. You can use it for collaboration. Imagine you have three people constantly merging each other's documents together. Now you have a collaborative system. It's a very powerful primitive that they give you there. Those are really cool. Yeah, I mean, these all different types of scenarios that come up and around it are pretty cool. Now, Frank, I need to know how to use it. But first, let's take a break and thank one of our sponsors this week, our good friends over at Telerik. Listen, the Telerik team over at Progress have been doing all sorts of cool, awesome things as of late. Here are a few highlights for you. Listen, Telerik UI, they support all sorts of things. Xamarin, iOS, Android, web, and also Blazor. That's right. You can get a rich set of web UI components designed specifically for Blazor, giving you the ability to write beautiful, rich web interfaces with C-sharp rather than JavaScript. No one wants to write JavaScript. Do it in C-sharp with the Blazors. They also have brand new controls for the Xamarin UI for Xamarin uh, toolkit that they have. Gives you all sorts of good things um, for iOS, Android, and UWP. They recently just released a brand new PDF viewer control, new pop-up controls, and a new doc layout control. You don't want to be writing this yourself. Rely on Telerik to do it for you. All you got to do is go to Telerik.com. That's it. Select a platform, whatever you're building for. They have beautiful UI components for you. Thanks to Telerik for sponsoring this week's pod. Thank you, Telerik. That was a good one. See, I, I've been doing Telerik for a while and uh, the good friends at Telerik and mm-hmm. 
we have different reads kind of mix it up a little bit here and there but that was a fun one i just really got into it and sort of mixed it up i like when john gruber talks about how he likes reading the sponsorship ads on the talk show because i love doing it we've been doing this podcast for 168 episodes frank and once we started getting sponsors we were kind of in this in-between say like do we do sponsorship do we not do sponsorships? Mm -hmm. how do we support the pod and the fun part about these in sponsor, like I did that all live. Like people may not know, but I just I just blurred it all out. And you can tell if I didn't do it in in the in in here and I just added on later because the the microphone, my voice, right, is all different. But I love I love these ads. I just love because they're great companies, great products, and I just have fun. It's like impromptu every time. I have to admit that I'm a little bit dark here and I kind of love it when you mess up a little bit. So <laughs> when you get through smoothly like that, I'm like, darn, <laughs> but that was very good, James. Well done. <laughs> thank you. <And> thank you. <laughs> no, thank you, Telerik. <laughs> That's right. Thank you, Telerik, for sponsoring this week's pod. Um, pod. All right, so how do I use this thing? Because you said there's, all right. there's protocol buffers and that I believe comes from Google, but I believe it's, it sounds like it's a generic concept. Like JSON is a generic concept in which a whole bunch of things could be built around. And I assume that protocol buffers are the same. Yes. No. Yep. Yep. Um, I wouldn't call them like an open source standard or anything. It's just, we all said we want a binary schema format and this is a good one. We're all going to use this. (laughs) Google's got good engineers. They did a good job. (laughs) Might as well use it. You know, one of those kinds of things. Uh, But I think in the .NET world, you kind of have, there used to be more variety, actually, how you could consume these things. But as all things in the world, it's kind of narrowed down to two different ways. So one is there is a NuGet library out there by Mark Gravel. Uh, Shoot. You know, the problem is they all kind of have the same name, too. It's like Protobuf. But if you just search for Protobuf on your NuGets, uh, you'll see these libraries. And there's going to be one from Mark and one from Google. Now, if you do the one from Mark, that's the one that's the closest to JSON.net. Meaning instead of writing a protocol buffer file, like it's at the schema in a different language, you annotate your C-sharp objects or your F-sharp objects or whatever your .NET objects are. You just put little attributes on them. And then it does its magic behind the scenes stuff and turns those into protocol buffer objects. That's pretty cool. Oh, so, okay. So I'm looking here and it's on protocol buffer slash proto buff. I think that this is the right thing. And they support a bunch of different languages and it looks like it's just a, maybe a .NET standard library. It looks like perhaps. Yeah. Uh, so Mark's library had one small problem. It was using reflection emit. So mm. you couldn't use it on iOS, but nowadays with more advanced Xamarin technologies in particular, the interpreter and such, uh, you might be able to use it now. But I have to admit, I'd never used this library specifically because I use I, I'm an iOS developer, so I, I couldn't use it. But if you're not constrained to using iOS, I recommend this just because it means you're not um, maintaining a separate schema file. You're able to just have C-sharp objects. Got it. Yeah, I think this is it by Mark Gravel. Is that what you said, right? Yep. 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 Protocol, protobuf net. And there's also a google.protobuf yes, too. that's your second option yeah ah okay now your second option so option one is write c-sharp classes and put attributes on them 
Okay. Option two is you write a separate file, a protocol buffer file, .proto or .proto3, whatever. And that is its own little language. It's not complicated. Uh, instead of classes, they're called messages, but it's you know just a structure of data, just a name structure of data. It supports integers, numbers, strings, um, maps, so relationships like mapping string to other kinds of messages. They support um, enums of a sort. <laughs> it's like uh, you can say it's going to be one of these things, not not two of them, just one of these things, <laughs> and you can give a list of possibilities. So it's not a complicated language, and I, I kind of enjoy it almost from a data modeling perspective. It's a nice way... Sometimes if I'm just thinking about an app, I like to just think about the data of the app and I'll sit down and usually I write out an F-sharp schema because F-sharp is a pretty nice data modeling language. But um, nowadays I'm starting to write more protocol buffers to kind of write out my data format. Hmm. Yeah, I'm looking at the protocol buffer sort of spec. It seems a little json-y and a little yeah a little bit xml like it's, it's i'd say a little java-y <laughs> yeah a little java-y in a way which makes a lot of sense but it's not too complicated if you've ever written a json file ever basically yeah plus i should say um this format is gaining momentum protocol buffers it's used a lot in uh the machine learning stuff all the ai stuff and so i've just gotten used to reading the schema and I think it, it takes like a day and you're a schema master. There's really just not that much to the language. Yeah. <laughs> so don't worry about that part. But it is a separate language, a separate file that you would write out. And then you use a tool. It could be any tool, but I use the tool provided by Google itself to generate the C-sharp code that mirrors that schema. So for every message, it'll create a C-sharp class. And every one of those C-sharp classes will have uh, the ability to read and write to streams. It's basically that simple. Hmm. So from your schema, generate classes, and these classes know how to read and write themselves. Simple. That's cool. I like that. That, that reminds me of how I was generating RESTful clients and data objects with Swagger definition files. because Exactly. Exactly okay. the same thing. Nailed Got it. it. Now, what's cool about that is there's like this open API protocol. And the whole idea is like, hey, if you put a Swagger definition file for JSON, give it to Visual Studio or some other tool or command line probably. And you say, hey, here's this endpoint or here's this file. Generate all the classes for you. And, you know, generate all the gobbledygook of the clients and the serialization and the deserialization handle it for me. Whereas in the past, what you would do is you would point it to, you know, a, here's a copy, paste some JSON and then copy those classes in. And what happens if the schema changes? Where in this sort of magic is you just either rerun the tool, like you're saying with your proto file, or here you just hit a refresh button in Visual Studio and it says, cool, just updating your schema. Now you got all the new stuff, right? And then boom. Yeah. Yeah, I've always argued whenever you have an API, whenever you have a machine talking to another machine, you should not be handwriting that code. That No, it's it's just a communication protocol. That should be generated. That should 100% be generated code. And so 
for me, it's always just been about finding a good schema description language and good tooling that generates code that I think is good enough to run in my apps. You know, they have to meet these minimum bars of perfectionism. (laughs) And I think Google's is doing that. Is there some special backend? Like, because you're going to have to create a web server. Like, is there some special web server thing that you need? Or is it just like a response? It's just some bytes, you know? You get some bytes back and you read them correctly. Now, at the end of this episode, we are going to get to gRPC, which is what you're working with. So we'll have to get there eventually. But that does have a few more restrictions. But let's see. Is there anything left we should talk about? Oh, one thing I want to talk about. So with this code generation, I'm really lazy. And I like using these protocol buffers as my data modeling language. That is all my model classes. That is the things that I'm doing logic on in my app. I like to have those be identical to my data objects. But I'm always having this question in my head. Are, you know, data objects versus model objects? These are serialization objects versus these are kind of the logic objects. I hate that split because I just hate mirroring, uh, you know, objects like that, whole hierarchies and repeating myself like that. But at the same time, I think with the way that Google is saying all the fields are optional, therefore you need to interpret these objects. I think that these are kind of forcing me to accept that duality, that these are just data objects and not necessarily model objects. But I'll admit, I still cheat and use these as model objects in a lot of places. Okay, so this is this is a good this is good, right? Because I do this all the time where I take my JSON and I put it into class. I'm I'm just gonna use yep. these classes. <laughs> the problem there is that often you don't need all of those things, but also you may want to perform logic changes on it. You may want to convert things, you may want to raise property changes, like in 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 MVVM type of stuff. You might want to raise things up or raise other properties and you you need other stuff. And, um, you know, you might get something back from the server that's an integer, but you might need it to be a double for some reason or vice versa, a double and you want it to be an int or some, some other thing. So I was recently just going through this because in, traditionally in the past, I would always use those, what are you calling? This is the, what are you calling it? Data objects versus the data yeah. object as the model object. So data from <laughs> mm-hmm. the server model in your app, right? Yeah. I've been using the data objects as my models, but traditionally in MVVM, there was this kind of clear separation, which was your model, which is actually your data object that's coming through. You probably don't use directly. You create some other mapping in between that's going to do all yeah. this stuff. So I have been finding myself sort of going down this route of creating sort of the in-between. And the reason I started doing this in some regard is because if you, the the tooling of Visual Studio or these generators, as you called them, like these generators, at least in Visual Studio, will take all those generated classes and client code and it hides it. It's like, it's not even, oh no, it's, it's all in the bin <gasps> in OBJ. It's just back over there. It's not in your it's not in your project. It's in your project, but it's in like yeah. an obj somewhere. So it sort of forces you that you can't get to it. So you have to create the model object anyways. You know, you could use it directly. Uh-huh. It's totally there. It's yeah. totally there. But if you regenerate it, it, the API could change. So the reason that you may not want to 
do it is because you kind of have this in between. It's almost like a repository, right? The yeah. repository model, which like I, nobody likes, but that needs, I guess. I do not. I do not like the compiler generating code. I do it all the time, to be clear, just because we all need a hack here or there. We just want to get this thing done. But in principle, I hate it. I'd much rather have the code in the project. The compiler just compiles the code. Even if there's a build step where some code's generated, it shouldn't be in the compile step. It should be oh, a get, separate file, a separate entity. I guess it is a um, build. Maybe it's a build. I think it's a build stop. Well, it's just whether you can sure. get to the file. If you can't get to the file, then it doesn't matter. I just mean I want to be able to open the file and see what it's spitting out. That's important you can, to me. You you can get to it if you say show hidden files. Oh, geez. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so, but. Okay. Yeah. Well, just to make this concrete, I just want to give an example. So now uh, let's say in, in my app circuit, circuit is the root object. That's what everything comes off of. And now I have two functions on that. Uh, one is called read, and it takes as a parameter circuit data. And circuit data is actually what I generate from like the protocol buffer file. So that's how I merge my, that's how, that's my interface between the model world and the data world. The model objects are able to read data objects and they're able to create data objects. And then it's up to me to serialize them or do whatever. I don't love that duality, but at least it's a nice, simple duality that I create for a circuit object. It can take circuit data. It's easy to reason about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. I'm creating. I created this little weather app. Yes. Or last week. And if you watch Donet Conf today, you'll see it again. But <laughs> I had this. I got all this data. So here's the other reason for it, too. So. I would get all this weather data from the server, like humidity and barometric pressure and, and all these things. But that was just raw data. And what I needed for the user interface is I had a collection view that was going horizontally left and right. And I wanted each of them to be a blob. Like here's a little card for each of the things. So I needed to create a list and that list would be a weather data item. That's like what I created And the weather data item has a name, a value and some other thing. So I kind of morphed that data into like what my UI would want for all intents and yeah. purposes. So it wasn't like I was recreating the weather. I'm saying like, all right, here's the weather data that it's giving me and I'm going to shove it in this other data format. So my UI knows how to correctly display it in different situations. Yeah. And you can play games like technically the code generators make partial classes. So technically you could really make it a really gray border between your model objects and your data objects. I'm just as lazy as I am. I think I just sleep better at night with them being separate objects. It's it's more work, but it's just speaking from long-term maintenance mode, it's it's work worth doing just so you don't have to deal with it in the future. That's true. So... Let's talk about APIs for a yeah. minute. <laughs> so not only does protocol buffers have these messages, which are your data objects, but it has a thing called the services in it where you can make functions that servers obey and perform. And then they created this thing called gRPC, which I can imagine means really good remote procedure calls, probably Google remote procedure calls, but I like good pr remote procedure calls. And as I kind of said in the beginning of the episode, I don't know too much about these other than um, just like you would use JSON and a lot of REST things. Now uh, you're communicating with the server using protocol buffers. So we're still using everything we talked about. A fun detail is you're using HTTP 2, mm. 2. 
And that means that instead of making lots of connections to the server, you're keeping an open connection and making lots of requests to it. It's just an efficiency thing. It's a binary protocol. So now it's all binary. The HTTP is binary. The protocol buffers are binary. All the networking nerds are satisfied. We can move on with our lives. <laughs> so tell me about your experiences with the gRPC. Yeah, I, I think it's relatively similar. So what I've done so far is similar to what I talked about with the Swagger definition, which is I have I have a proto thing on the back end, and the <laughs> proto file can get updated, and that generates all the classes and all the code. And and the difference that I notice compared to normal restful endpoints or the swagger definition of, of of the JSON is that traditional, like you're saying, right? I would make a request to the server, that server would then return a response, and then that was it. But what I've noticed, at least with this bi-directional streaming, sort of what you're talking about here is since it's using HTTP2, is that you can continuously stream data non-stop to it. Not like a WebSocket, but just over a normal HTTP2. And you can have it update and and you use some of the new C-sharp features like iAsync enumerable, for instance, to just get a stream, not, not even a stream of data, but just an ongoing... Yeah. It's almost react, it's a stream. Like react. It's, it's a, a stream. stream. It's a stream of data that continues to go. And so that's sort of what I've noticed, at least, of things that you can do. But I honestly literally just started touching it today. So I'm not a <laughs> gRPC pro, but... I do need to go watch uh, that ASP.NET community stand up because James Newton King, I think, gives a complete overview of everything. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah uh, I think um, it's exactly, I love that you jump straight to that streaming stuff because that's probably my favorite feature of it. Um, in the past, you said WebSocket, you said the big elephant in the room <laughs> because HTTP, HTTP2 is trying to replace WebSockets, basically. Uh, the argument is we only needed WebSockets because the HTTP protocol forgot about streaming, basically. <laughs> we need streaming, and it wasn't baked into the protocol. Not at least. We had chunk sending, but it wasn't the same. And so we have HTTP2, and HTTP2, I think, is too complicated. Get it? Too it's too complicated. It's too complicated. Uh, you could write an HTTP server in like eight lines of code in C Sharp just using sockets. It's not a big deal. But you cannot write an HTTP2 server. They are complex beasts doing complex operations with complex data formats. And it, we've just lost that. We lost that fight. But what we gained was streaming and efficiency. I think it's exciting because now we won't have to do WebSocket on top of HTTP. It'll just be that's supported. That means routers will obey it, hopefully, if they ever update. You know, proxies will obey it. All that kind of stuff will properly obey it. So I think it's a great world moving into HTTP2. I have no idea about gRPC. <laughs> should be good, too. Yeah, should be good. From what I can tell... It seems good. You have a server on the back end and then you get requests and responses via protos and it can be anything. I mean, I think that's the idea, right? You could have. Yeah, I'm assuming that seeing that the gRPC team was on the ASP.NET community setup, I'm imagining that there's an easy way of putting this into your .NET backends with gRPC. I'm imagining because that's what's <laughs> there and then could easily consume it from your .NET applications. And there's a gRPC .NET 
library, which, which we, you know, you stumbled upon and I stumbled upon what I'm using to then consume those proto files. And that just happens to work everywhere, which is good. Well, it's nice because there's actually, they split the library in two. You have grpc.net.client and you have grpc.net.server. Perfect. Can't get any simpler than that. <laughs> it's just like Signal one on one. Yeah, it's like Signal. <laughs> Is that R. it? Yeah, it's that simple. Yeah. Uh, I love this world because honestly, the fact that we have, the fact that it's so hard to do API communications between servers, it's a fallout of a naturally evolving system, but it's also an error of history. We could have had better protocols from the beginning. It's just the crappier ones won out. That's what happened. And so it's good to have uh, a tighter foundation here. I'm going to miss the text, though. Who who doesn't like text and seeing all people's passwords flying through thin air? Now it's all going to be <laughs> binary and encrypted and streaming ultra Googleified. Oh, well. <laughs> Seems like it's for the greater good. I'm just saying. Seems for the like greater it. good. For yeah. the greater good. But... Well, for me, um, it just it makes me happy about serialization for at least a few more years. I, I feel like every few years I get upset about how I'm saving data, but I feel like I, me and protocol buffers we're going to get along for a while. So I should be should be a happy coder for at least a few years now. <laughs> you should. I think that uh, I'm pretty excited about whatever's happening with this gRPC shenanigans, and now that I have a little bit more knowledge of what I can do with it. I guess the only thing I need to think about now is what should I build, Frank? Oh, what should I well, build? That I can give you a list of things I need. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Well, maybe not. Don't tell me what I need to build. But uh, if you need something built, go check out these protocol buffers and and let us know if you're using. I'd be interested to know if our listeners are using protocol you know, buffers. I have no idea. I just we I just realized we made it through this whole episode talking about schemas for web APIs without mentioning SOAP. And I just want to congratulate us for not mentioning soap. Good did job, us. Did you see how in the beginning I said, in the past, you may have used XML or JSON <laughs> to... Was that a subtle reference? It was a very subtle reference. I mean, well, I didn't say... Reference it. acknowledged now. <laughs> you, you might have used a dirty XML that needed to be cleaned up. And how do you clean that up? With some soap. <laughs> oh, burn. Wow. I don't know. Is that on the spot? That's terrible. <laughs> I don't actually know if that's... End the show, James. End the show. All right, that's it. All right, we're out of here. Till next time, you can follow us everywhere on the internet at MergeConflict.fm, MergeConflict.fm, as well as the website. You can hit that contact button. You can, of course, leave us a review on the internet. I should check the iTunes and see if anyone wrote us a lovely review or not. We did put out that request, if you remember, Frank. Do you remember that? Begging for reviews. It's very low of us, but that was such a nice review last time that uh, how can you not beg for more of that? <laughs> I don't know if it was begging necessarily, but it was definitely a please give us a review. Call. A call to action. A call to action. Um, That's what we call begging now. Yes, I think so. Um, now, I don't necessarily have iTunes up. So maybe next week, if you submit okay. a review, we'll call to action again. <laughs> Give us a little review. We'll, we'll let you know what's up. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this week's Merge Conflict. Like I said, um, you can find us everywhere on the internet. You can check out our Patreon page. You can do all this stuff. Just go to mergeconflict.fm. We're there. Um, until next time, I'm James Montemagno. And I'm Frank Krueger. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>